Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is not a diving podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, so we haven't done a solo pod for a good few weeks now, a good few months, in fact. And actually, some of the best uh, received episodes that we've done on the show have been the ones which have basically consisted of me talking to a mic for a fairly extended period. I actually do find them pretty fun to do as well. It's, it's a really useful exercise I find in, I guess, sharpening up my thoughts and the way I view the, um, the issues that we've discussed on the show over the preceding few weeks and perhaps setting up some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in the subsequent few weeks. And now actually what I've just described there is much more what I'm planning to do today than what has happened on previous solo pods. But it's worth, just before we get started, just pointing out that the two episodes that I did, which were entitled Thoughts on Releasing Music, which were episodes 58 and 59, and for context, we're now on episode 76. Those two episodes are very commonly referred to by people who are feeding back to me about the show. Those two are commonly referred to by people as being their favorite episodes. So that's really nice. And um, (laughs) well, I mean, it's really nice because those two episodes are basically the story of my career. I essentially interviewed myself without too much preparation. It's, It's largely winged. Um, the audio on those episodes, but it came out quite nicely in a way which kind of pulls together, like I said, my the story of my career to date and putting it in the context of the changes in the scene and the industry over that period, which is basically 20 years. And um, you may have noticed that we're t- celebrating 20 years of hot flush this year. So that kind of informed the whole thing too. So long way of saying these episodes are enjoyable for me to do and people seem to like them. So why not do some more of them to invoke a uh, popular British sitcom? Right. What are you talking about today? As I mentioned before, we're going to pull together some of the themes that we've discussed on the show in recent weeks. So I'm particularly thinking about the episode with Shifted, which was really, really popular 
with many of you and subsequently with Ambivalent and DJ Bone. Now, since we did the last solo pod, we've also had really great episodes from people like Alan Fitzpatrick and Tamsin Embleton talking about mental health, as well as three episodes from Ibiza where we talked about Ibiza and that's a subject which is, um, I think, interesting and worth digging into, but we won't be doing so today. We've also talked a bit about, actually quite a lot about the scene, generally speaking, in the United States, particularly with Tamer and also with Jeremy P. Caulfield. And Damien Lazarus was quite interesting on that too, just regarding specifically Burning Man, which is a very interesting topic too, but again, not one for the, this afternoon, or actually this morning, as, I, as I'm recording this. Um, sidebar to say that my best creative hours are definitely in the morning. Absolutely. I can do almost nothing after lunch. But today, yes, back on track. Um, <laughs> the shifted episode, we talked about basic... Well, I mean, the, the jumping off point was was the definition of quote, business techno and um, the implications of the phenomenon of business techno. God, I always mispronounce the word phenomenon and I have to kind of <laughs> emphasize it, making myself sound absolutely ridiculous. But the phenomenon of business techno and its implications for... The dance scene in particular, because we, we do talk about the music industry in general terms. I do refer to that quite a lot on the show, but really most of the time when I'm talking about the quote-unquote music industry, I mean the dance scene, which is a very specific and quite esoteric corner of the music industry. But that's what we were talking about with Shifted mostly, and specifically in techno. Um, techno is a kind of, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable microcosm of the rest of it obviously with its um, own peculiarities. But yeah, so that stuff, in addition to, I mean, stuff like geolocated scenes, I mean, that was a really interesting aspect of that discussion, I felt. But also, to be honest, just a tendency to, I guess, moan about the current state of whatever creative environment you're in. Now, that is something which I think is just deeply baked in to discourse, generally speaking, it's always been like that. And something we've talked about, I think, increasingly is just observing that happen, being aware of it, but not allowing that to be then a kind of like dampening force on, on what's being talked about, right? Because, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that there is a tendency to do that, but sometimes that is also justified, right? And I think it's it's very easy just to say, oh, no, well, you know, it's just to kind of dismiss something that's being said purely because it's of that nature, right? And sometimes these things have real value is the reality of it. So I'll dig into that a little bit more. And that's stuff which is, as I said, has been you know, discussed on the show previously, but that's also setting up some conversations that we have coming up on the show over the next few weeks. One of the other things I want to talk about is something that I tried to address in my appearance on Beats in Space a couple of months ago, or certainly it was recorded a couple of months ago, actually came out more recently than that. And that's the general trend of, well, a hypothesis that there is a general trend of decline in cultural importance of music. Now, that's something I tried to enunciate during that interview, during that appearance, and did a really bad job of it. Luckily, they cut out most of my thrashing around in the actual broadcast interview. But this is something I've thought about a lot, and I've got a bit more of a well-thought-out theory 
on this now. So I'll just go through that, I think, on this episode two, which is actually something I've been meaning to do as an ending to an episode, but not quite around to it. So this is useful, actually. One of the other things which we have coming up in some detail, actually, was going to be more than one episode about this, is the emergence of AI and what that means for making music, what it means for the music industry, what it means for the dance scene, taking those two things as separate. And just, I guess, addressing the anxieties and the absolutely justified concerns that I think people have around this technology and the fact that it's likely to be extremely significant. I mean, like there is obviously a tendency to over-index whatever recent development there has been. But I mean, last year we talked about blockchain technology and that's actually something that we're going to be talking about too in, in, in the coming weeks. But I think the... Um, the significance of that was largely overplayed. I think we can probably say now, and it's not just down to the price action. But I think AI is much more fundamental in its potential effects on creativity at a general level, right? I mean, blockchain was a, um, a I guess, a functional technology which has the potential to be very useful. But AI really is something which has the potential to completely change the nature of reality without over-egging it. I don't think that is uh, exaggeration at all, actually. I think it's something which is going to be absolutely profound in its effects in the coming years and, and decades. I mean, the rest of our collective lives, there's a good chance, I think, will be shaped almost entirely by the development of that technology. I mean, that's certainly in the range of outcomes anyway. So yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, what else are we talking about? I think, yeah, there's just the general development of the show and we'll talk a bit about the Patreon thing at the end, which no doubt will have some of your eyes glazing over. But I mean, it is significant in the development of the show and the continued existence of it. So, um, yeah, I don't do that now, though. So where should we start? How about AI? I think... Yeah, let's let's start here, shall we? So, okay, just important to emphasize up the front, right, that I'm very much self-taught here and I'm not in any way an expert. And part of the reason that I want to do shows about this is to learn more about it. I think what I'm just going to go over is my understanding of what people's, well, people who don't have a level of technical knowledge, what their intuitions are, what their fears are, and to what extent those things are justified, and what I think about it at the outset. So just going to start by, I think, saying, let's just let's just compare it, shall we, with the emergence of the internet more generally on the economy, right? I think this is the last comparable development like this. I mean, you might point to the smartphone, but I mean, something which is as, I think, potentially fundamental, because obviously the smartphone really was just about something which built off the internet. The last thing that which is comparably fundamental to the potential of AI, I think, was the internet more generally. So what did that do to the economy? So I'm just going to point to something, some analysis that I heard enunciated by a macro strategist called Juliette de Klerk the other week. And this is, this is very much bird's eye view stuff, but I mean, her observation was that basically the internet and the productivity gains that the internet enabled lowered the cost of goods but increased the cost of everything which is not directly affected by those productivity gains by the internet. So, for example, 
the cost of a flat screen TV, to use the proverbial, was decreased dramatically. But the costs of higher education and healthcare were increased dramatically. We should say that the money that was made by those increases in productivity and by the reduction of the prices in those consumer goods was then spent or was expressed in the inflation of stuff which was not able to be deflated by the emergence of the internet. I think it's probably fair to say that some similar thing will happen overall with the emergence of AI and its likely effects on the economy more generally. And I think you can look at its potential effects on creative industries. And let's just talk about music. Let's just keep it on music. I think you can probably expect something similar to happen within that ecosystem. So I'll say something now, which is probably not going to be too popular with a lot of people. But I don't think musicians, modern musicians, I think the majority of people who make music or who are involved directly in sort of creative side of music, I don't think they can be really described as artists. I think the term, you know, artist is just not useful at all in trying to describe, I'm trying to think about what these people actually do. And I obviously count myself in this cohort of people. So I don't think I'm talking about people in, you know, other people. I'm absolutely in this group. But I think that content creator is actually a much better term. I don't think any great art, quote unquote, has been produced in the ecosystem of, I mean, I'm just talking about music, let's just keep it on music, let's don't even think about anything else. I don't think any great art has been produced by the music industry this century. I don't think anything that will really stand the test of time has been created. Lots of reasons for that. But I think just the fact that everything is stuffed into a market precludes largely, I mean, not entirely, but I think it largely precludes great art being produced. Now, this is that's just a very boiled down version of a, an observation. I'll probably go into that in a bit more detail later on. But I think basically what people are doing in music now isn't art. It can't, can't realistically be described as art. What it is, is creating content to fill the demand, satiate the demand in the marketplace for a certain particular thing. And that's not art. I mean, that's definitely, you know, no definition of art fits that. So really you're just replicating and refining stuff which has gone before. Now, why am I saying this? Well, what is AI going to do to the actual production of music, to the actual making of this stuff? Well, it's going to make it much easier, clearly, and I've made the observation previously that all of the music, all of the major music tech developments of the last 20 years have really been focused on making it easier to replicate something which has happened before. So AI is just going to turbocharge this. And the tools which are available, already available using AI technology, really are just that, right? I mean, they're not focused on almost by definition, something which has been trained on something is not going to come up with original ideas, although certainly not in the first instance anyway. I mean, there's a potential for that to happen down the line, but you know, this is really just building on stuff which has already happened. I mean, that's the nature of, certainly LLMs, that's the nature of those things, right? So this thing is just basically designed to replicate and refine, right? And just make a new version of something which has happened before. So that's, to me, obvious. So this is just something, uh, a kind of turbocharged version of the tech developments of the last 20 years. So what does that mean? 
let's look at three different groups or three areas. There's the music industry as a whole, the dance scene, I guess as seen as distinct. I mean, you know, obviously it's a part of the music industry, but let's look at that uh, in a distinct way. And then musicians who are trying to make a living in the dance scene, so specifically in the dance scene. So looking at the industry as a whole, you might argue that as there is a greater supply of music and a greater supply of music perhaps which is made with a specific utility in mind, the average, say, dollar value of each piece of music might decline, but then the overall market might increase in value. And particularly if you are of the opinion that for music which is purely made with a utility in mind, that the efficiency of that music might increase with the use of AI tools. I think that's a reasonable assumption to make. I think if you assume that the majority of music which is released is specifically designed to do something, and that might be just fit in a playlist, by the way. It might be something like ASMR. It might be something to do with advertising, with marketing. It might be just to make people dance. These things, I think, are potentially leverageable or rather AI is potentially leverageable to increase the efficacy of the efforts to make that music and its kind of functionality, I suppose. And so no doubt this will mean more music, but also it might mean that music is better for those purposes. And that's a really distasteful way of describing what is ostensibly creativity. But, you know, as I said, I think modern musicians, we're not making art, we're making content. And I'm well aware of how bad that sounds, but let's be honest about this. That is what is happening. So there's a potential, I think, for the music industry to, to gain. And then who gains? When the music industry gains, well, it's the big players, isn't it? Always it's the major labels. But it's worth thinking about the nature of what generates revenue for those major labels now. And it's actually not new music. It's catalogue music. It's the biggest acts who are generating the most streams, the most money now, the top 5% or top 1% actually of contemporary artists. But actually it's the catalogue stuff. It's the stuff from the 70s, 80s and 90s and older, but I think I think mostly those decades, which is generating most of the cash for those for those companies. So, I mean, there was a story the other week talking about the revenue which is still generated by Queen and um, it's like they made 50 million. I mean, the, the Queen estate, I don't know how it's accounted or whatever, but Queen as an act generated $50 million in 2022. And they haven't released an album, they haven't released a track or haven't released anything of any note really for nearly 40 years. So that is, I guess, a kind of counter argument to the potential for AI um, and this kind of like avalanche of stuff like just being poured into the music ecosystem. I guess it's an argument against that really you know, by definition, making a big dent in the kind of bottom line of, of the industry. So the dance scene, like what does this mean? I think basically, as as mentioned, I think really what this does, the, the most obvious thing is it's just going to accelerate the forces that have been existent for the last 20 years. And, you know, talking about uh, music tech, I think the dance scene is is more exposed to these music tech developments than other parts of 
the music industry just because the way the you know the way the music is made and the explicit impact of of music tech on the whole thing so so what's likely to happen is that this is just going to be a accelerated move away in from the value of recorded music and towards the value of performance which is to say dj fees and live performance fees and the continued hollowing out of the recorded side of, of a dance scene i don't really see any alternative to that now one thing that might happen is that more or an increasing uh, value is attached to physical product. So even within the environment of a decreasing recorded music revenue share, you might have within that vinyl and maybe even CD and cassette, like those releases becoming more important and people attaching more um, collectible value to those formats. I think it's eminently possible that vinyl could have a increasing share and ultimately a significant share because, I mean, it's not really significant now, but I think it could become significant again in the kind of share of that overall pie, even if that pie is decreasing relative to performance and the revenue generated by that side. I think that's completely possible that could happen. So I think overall, you know, more music, more recorded music means that there is less value attached to it, basically. And perhaps more value attached to the very, very top, if you want to look at it like that, the very, very top of that market. But I think overall, it's just going to be less and less important. And I think maybe in some certain respects, we're looking at the end of recorded music as we know it, in terms of its position in the music industry. I think that's something which is which is eminently possible. And it may be even probable at this point. I just think that the fact that it's so easy to make a tune, which is good enough, which is a term that I've used many times on the show, I, th- I just think that means it removes any value associated with that thing. You know, it was always a feature of making a record or, you know, singing a song or playing a song or writing a song that you needed some talent to do it. Therefore, it was scarce, you know? It's a scarcity value. And it's just not there anymore. So why why should there be any value attached to it if it's not there? Yeah, I think this is completely possible. And actually, that's an implication for the whole of the music industry. You know, I think there's a very good chance that it could just be not entirely gone, but I mean, it's already a very, very small part of entertainment over, overall, and certainly very, you know, if you look at media, communication, that kind of thing, it's a tiny part of that. And, you know, I think it's just going to be decreasing in importance. That's a completely possible, again, in the range of outcomes, for sure. So what does this mean for musicians in dance music? Well, I mean, what I've just said has pretty obvious implications, doesn't it? I think there are those who make music which is very difficult to replicate, but I think ultimately that's expressed through the performance of that music, largely speaking. And actually, most of the time, it's the performance which is the unique bit rather than the actual music itself. I'm thinking about, you know, if you look at an artist like Kink, who makes pretty functional records, I mean, I'm a big fan of his music, but it's, it's club music. The unique aspect of him as an artist is absolutely the performance. And the reason I think for his, you know, not inconsiderable success over the last few years is the fact that he's such a compelling performer even if the music that's coming out of the speakers 
isn't necessarily, you know, what you might describe as like innovative. Like his method of performance is, as I said, extraordinarily compelling and people just absolutely vibe off it. So I think there's going to be more value attached to that kind of thing, that ability to express yourself artistically or, I mean, again, <laughs> express yourself creatively, shall we say, let's, let's, keep, let's keep that terminology. Um, there's going to be more value attached to that versus the ability to make a record which is played by a DJ. I think that is a very likely outcome of the continued developments in this area. And again, I don't, I'm not even really characterizing AI as a, as a game-changing thing here. It's, it's, it's something which is a continuation of an existing theme. Um, and basically, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to further create scarcity around artists who make music which can't be replicated by this technology. And that's a really interesting potential development, but it's going to be a development which is going to tear down some existing norms. I think that's, that's inevitable, really. So... One of the important people, I guess, in this space, one of the most important people in tech is Mark Andreessen, the venture capital guy who um, I think his initial claim to fame was was starting Netscape. I was listening to him talk about this, generally speaking, as a broad area recently. And he made the point that the big breakthrough in the technology was the realization or was, was basically the effect of training large language models, training them in the totality of the human contribution, you can put it like that, the totality of human knowledge and the sort of like revelation that these things are us in his words. This thing is us was the direct quote. And that includes morals, ethics, behaviors. And he was using this as a he was using it to back up a point about how a kind of general um, opinion he has that we shouldn't be too worried about the potential behavior of AI. I don't know how, I don't know what the terminology is, AI bots or whatever. Obviously there is a, a widespread fear that they could destroy us. But I mean, his, his view is that the fact that morals, ethics and, you know, behavior is hardwired into to these things a certain standard of ethics should be um, expected or can be expected realistically. I'm I'm not at all sure that I believe, I'm not at all sure that I sign up to that. So there was a Water and Music who do great work. Sherry Hu is a, is, a, is a genuinely interesting contributor. They did a guest editorship of Resident Advisor last month. And the first piece that they published in that guest editorship was about ethics in AI. And I have to say, notwithstanding what I just said about water and music and how great I think they are, I thought that piece was naive at best, honestly. I think the idea that we can expect some sort of self-policing and sort of self-governing ethical behavior amongst the people using AI, particularly in creative arts or whatever, I think that is, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's realistic in any kind of a way. And I think the attempt to construct frameworks which people are going to voluntarily use is um, essentially a waste of time. Now, there are efforts to establish a system of opt-outs from you know, learning data sets and that kind of thing. We are hopefully going to be welcoming someone on the show who's directly involved in those efforts in the next few weeks. But I think that there's a real danger, I think, of 
not being realistic about the likely utility that people are going to draw from this stuff. I mean, you might want to consider how many dance tracks that are released every week are made using crack software. You know, I would say a significant percentage, right? A very significant percentage. And if people are happy to steal the tools that they're using, I mean, you can draw your own conclusions from whether they're going to have any, you know, quibbles about using stuff which is indirectly stolen. Because, I mean, that's what this is, right? I mean, some AI model is trained using the totality of um, every house track which has ever been made. I don't think, you know, your average aspiring producer is going to give that much of a shit, really. I think the, the expectation that we're going to have ethical standards here is, as I said, extremely naive. Anyway, that's the sidebar. So, okay, as I said, I'm not an expert in this and I'm hoping to become slightly more informed in the coming weeks when we talk about this stuff with people who perhaps are better informed than I. But I mean, I think those are some general observations, certainly intuitions that I have. And I think you know there are many people who are pretty scared about this stuff and what it might mean for them. I think there's a very good chance that this is going to destroy value in recorded music anyway. Now, there's an equally good chance that the overall value of the marketplace might stay the same, which is to say money will be redistributed from recorded music to performance of music. That's totally possible. But it just means that I think that, you know, people who have made money a certain way, made a living in a certain way, won't be able to anymore. But that's just the nature of technology, right? That is the nature of technological change. People have to adapt and people don't like it. And as we've said on the show many times before, the dance scene is extremely conservative and people don't like change. So this is what is going <laughs> to inform the debate, I think, going forward. Okay, the decline in the cultural importance of music and business techno. <laughs> this is a large topic. I've got loads of notes. I don't really know what I'm going to say. Um, okay, so... Let's just start by going back to art and the absence of great art. A question you might want to ask yourself is, what is the difference between quote-unquote great art and art itself? Like, Can pop music be great art? I would argue that when popular culture innovates, it absolutely can meet the definition of a you know, things which are great works of art. I think, you know, you can very easily make the argument that the catalogue of the Beatles or a, you know, jazz innovator like Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock or, you know, blues musicians like B.B. King or, you know, Robert Johnson or whoever, you can quite easily make the argument that what they were doing was genuinely new and thus artistic in a way which you know wasn't what they were doing wasn't dependent on the acceptance of a marketplace i think that's kind of a key distinction i think if you're making music which is for well which is specifically to fill a gap in a market i think it's pretty difficult to make the argument that anything like that is great art or even is even art itself i would argue probably but i think anyway when that's kind of cycle of innovation stops then you're ultimately into you know a system of refinement and repetition 
eventually, you know, repetition. And clearly that's, you know, it's not what we talk about when we talk about art or certainly not great art. I would actually draw the analogy to food, to cooking here. And actually I saw Marco Pierre White make a, a similar point, which was that, I mean, and he was making this point, by the way, in the 1990s, and that's an important distinction here, but I mean, his his literal quote was, we live in an era of refinement, not innovation. And he was talking about you know, the, class, the legacy of classical French cooking and how there hadn't really been any steps forward, um, any real like fundamental steps forward anyway. Now, obviously what happened in cooking was that there were subsequent fundamental steps forward. Now, not to everyone's taste, but I mean, if you talk about, you know, molecular gastronomy and the influence of certain Spanish chefs, I mean, there definitely was subsequent innovation there. So this is not necessarily a dead end. And you could definitely argue that, you know, at any point, maybe uh, in the 20th century, you could have said this, but there were subsequent developments which disproved it. One didn't, didn't disprove it, but just moved the landscape on. So this is not a kind of... This is not a, an argument which is fatalistic. Like it, it's it's not the end of the road, but it's a description of a of a certain point. And I think what we find ourselves in now is an era where there has been an unusually long time since the last period of innovation. I think we can state that pretty confidently. I mean, our era of refinement, analogous to Marco's, has been basically going on, I think, since the mid-90s. So we're 30 years into it now, I would largely say. Maybe you could argue the early 2000s, but I mean, that would be charitable. But ultimately, nothing really new has happened since then. And, you know, in those conditions, I think it's not surprising that there's been a decline in the relative value, cultural value, of that art form, and I'm you know, going to go on to say, uh, describe this in a little bit more detail. But I think under those conditions, it's not surprising that this has happened. And you might say that's a, uh, it's a, you know, just those conditions in the first place are arguable. But I would, I would argue that they exist. So just to explain this in a little bit more detail, let's go back to the idea of thinking about music, the modern music industry, through the lens or viewing it through the lens exclusively of a market. Now, okay, this is a idea which is going to be not that tasteful to a lot of people. And I think in music, we like to think of ourselves as above this stuff. But the reality is it's, that's, a, that's a fantasy. It's a total fantasy. Everything that is done in the, the kind of cultural area that we're operating in is a marketplace. It's all defined by the flows of money. So I went back and leafed through Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism book recently. And at the very start of it, he talks about the um, it being easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that's him quoting Slavoj Žižek. But I think in that case, and in largely in the case of this kind of discourse, capitalism, quote unquote, is, you know, it's largely an imagined bogeyman, right? It's this kind of spectre, which is kind of dreamt up to, I think, scare people, basically, or to kind of be a focus for people's anxieties. The market, on the other hand, is just the landscape in which stuff is happening. It's just the landscape which modern music inhabits. And that's without exception. Like, literally nothing happens that isn't in the market. Certainly in terms of its 
visibility. I mean, I said that you know, no great works of art had been made this century. Now, maybe they have, but we haven't seen them. And the nature of great works of art is that sometimes they're not visible until after the death of the artist. So it's completely possible that someone somewhere is making you know, transcendent works of musical art. That's completely possible. It's completely possible that some new form of recorded music, genuinely new form of recorded music, has been invented somewhere or some music has been written on a stave, which is a genuine step forward. But it's not, it's not visible because it doesn't inhabit the market, the marketplace, right? So that's basically everything that we know our entire consciousness is based around this. So it's not capitalism as this kind of, um, as I said, bogeyman. That's, that's just a, it's a fairy story. The marketplace is just where we are. So let's put that sort of imaginary stuff to one side. Now, the question is what the market rewards at any given time. Now, we talked about you know, periods of innovation, periods where genuinely new stuff happens and sometimes they're rewarded in the immediate term, and sometimes they take a bit longer to be rewarded. I mean, there are certainly examples of people who weren't that popular at the time, but then become valued culturally and commercially later on in that marketplace. But I think what's happened now is that the market is rewarding social distinction as opposed to musical innovation. I mean, this is something that we've gone into a fair bit. I think what is um, rewarded financially is the ability to communicate an identity. And that's basically um, a reflection of the performance side of music being more valuable financially, more valuable nominally than the recorded side because it's so much easier to communicate that identity in the context of a you know, performance of a piece of music or just a performance, you know, a DJing, or, you know, whatever, a performance of some sort. So, I mean, how do we, how can we observe this is happening? Well, you know, the people who become successful now are very easily identifiable set of attributes. Now, music is one of those things. So music is, hasn't <laughs> become completely irrelevant, not at all. So I don't think I'm saying that. But there are other aspects which are, I think, increasingly as important and arguably more important. So regular listeners would have heard me say this before, but yeah, image is something which has been a key part of the marketing of musicians since, I guess, well, since the war, let's put it like that. Um, and, you know, I'll give you prior to that. But I mean, just talking about music industry as it is now, as you can probably see it in the post-war era. So that's always been an important factor. So what's happened now really is that it's just been ramped up. It's been turbocharged like massively. And you have to look a certain way. Like there is not a lot of room for like difference. Scenes have been fragmented off into individual tribes, basically. And you have to be hitting the beats of that individual tribe, that individual marketplace, you want to look at it like that, to establish yourself. You know, you've got to be part of this gang. So this is apparent in, you know, many different small fragmented areas, little areas of the dance scene, whether it's goth techno, you know, that, that aesthetic, whether it's the kind of like, you know, sunny tech house thing, whether it's the LGBTQ thing, whatever social signal you want to make, 
But largely speaking, it has to fit into one of these predefined boxes. And that is the major difference, I think, from a period when music and musicians genuinely carried cultural significance was they weren't fitting in. People fit in with them. So you had followers of major artists who would replicate what they were doing rather than the artists themselves fitting in with their audience. I think that's been flipped on its head to a large extent. I mean, this goes back, you know, I don't know, thinking about, well, I identified the late 90s as the last time we had kind of musical innovation. And I mean, the obvious person to pick out there is Eminem. And, you know, he spawned a an army of clones, basically. And he, he satirized that on one of his most famous tracks, right? You know, the, the kind of army of Eminem kids that would turn up to his shows, I think was something he found very amusing. But like that's that was a well-established pattern you know, going back through the, you know, the the previous decades. You know, the bands that emerged, and sometimes they were groups of bands, so sometimes they were individual scenes which gave birth to certain looks and certain styles, but they were very, very uh, small, usually geolocated groups of people. They gave birth to much wider social waves, right? And largely speaking, those social waves already exist. There is no real innovation in social terms there. And the acts that have emerged in that time, especially in the last 10 years, I think, this is something which has accelerated. But the artists that emerge now fit into predefined structures in a way which is just not true, I think, before that, say before the turn of the century. So why has this happened or what are the conditions which have created this? I think to a large extent, this is explained by the ever increasing influence of corporate marketing departments. Now, this is something which is talked about in Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, which I've referred to on the show before, which was, I think, something which is really worth going back to read because it was written in the mid 90s and describes um, the kind of anti-capitalist, quote unquote, sentiment of the time, but in a way which is like, it seems quite quaint these days, the way that it's written and the kind of arguments that it puts forward. They've almost entirely been jettisoned, I think, by um, by social activists, actually. It's just not part of the, the kind of things that are put forward there are just not part of the conversation anymore. And a, a lot of it is um, defined, I think, by the total acceptance of corporate marketing by people who otherwise consider themselves to be radical politically. And you can see this in a you know, number of different ways. I mean, most recently, the thing, uh, the story in the news, which is relates to this most obviously, is Pride and the Pride uh, sponsorship by large corporations and the kind of corporate obsession with virtue signaling on LGBTQ issues in a way which is entirely opportunistic, you know, not um, sincere in any meaningful kind of a way. I mean, how could it be? How can a corporation be sincere about anything? It's just a, uh, an expression of, of marketing, nothing else. There is nothing else to it than that. Even if the people who are working in those, in those marketing departments, even if they're sincere, like the corporation isn't sincere. Those are two separate things entirely. So there is this unconscious embrace of 
capitalism, and I'm using the term in air quotes, and actually in the context of it being the bogeyman, I mean, people use the term in that way, absolutely, but have also embraced it in a way which is not acknowledged at all. This is also observable in the intrusion of brands into the cultural space, which in a way which is completely unchallenged. I mean, people today don't bat an eyelid when there's an enormous drinks logo in whatever cool festival they're they're attending. Now, obviously, there are companies which would not pass muster to those people, but ultimately, that's splitting hairs, I think. Once you've invited a corporation into your your cutting-edge cultural space, I think the... um, damage has been done already it doesn't matter whether it's a drinks company or an oil company uh, a sort of level of principle that whole thing is just it's not a point of debate anymore so social movements have been repackaged and sold back to the participants essentially and in that context it's not at all surprising that new entrants to the space have to play ball in some way or have to play by the existing rules i think that's just a you know something which is inevitable and ultimately um the fact that everything is marketing means that the visual side of everything, and this is obviously supported by certain social media platforms, but I think the fact that, like I said, everything is marketing and so aspirational visual sides becomes the most important thing or increasingly the most important thing. And as I said, you have to be able to hit certain musical beats to play ball here, to mix a metaphor. But if you can do that, then that's only half the ball game, <laughs> if I can continue with my mixed metaphor, like you have to be able to do the other things as well. And it doesn't matter how good your music is, you know, the music stuff is just something you have to, it's just a hoop you have to jump through. And then if your other stuff is good enough, then that's the real key. And I'm thinking about, you know, a, a great example of this, I think is, is Peggy Goo, whose visual marketing side is absolutely, you know, world-class and music is good enough and is largely there to fill a function but that's the, I guess, the aim of that project, right? It's to achieve commercial success, and it absolutely succeeds on those terms. So that's no, not throwing any shade on on that whole thing. I think it's, you know, it's extraordinarily successful, but in a way which is just absolutely illustrative and indicative of the landscape which it's inhabiting. So the most successful people in this space are basically cultural figures rather than musical figures. They're lifestyle icons, basically, and they trade off corporate tie-ins, they trade off fashion. That's an extremely important part of this picture. I think the fashion industry is just absolutely toxic and just destroys everything it touches. And music selling itself to the fashion industry, I think, is just... um, I think it's fucking appalling, actually. I think it's one of the worst things, which is uh, the worst associations that you can ever have is the fashion industry. But generally, music is a supporting role here rather than being the primary focus. So this is just a a branding exercise. These are individual brands being marketed and in a kind of music ecosystem, but the music is is an afterthought. This is true for the biggest musicians in the world. And I think you can see that by the recognisableness or not of the music itself. So one of the things that I, one of the points I tried to make in that Uh, Beats in Space interview was that people can't sing you a tune by the most famous musicians in the world, by the most famous singers in the world. I think if you went out in the street now, wherever you are, 
I mean, you're probably listening to this from a big city in the Western world somewhere. But I think if you went out in the street, picked a person at random and asked them to name or certainly not to sing or like, you know, hum a song that was released in the last 10 years by Beyonce or Madonna or Bad Bunny or, I don't know, Eminem. You know, picking out the some of the biggest selling artists. I was going to say Taylor Swift, but I think maybe some people could sing you a Taylor Swift song, maybe more. But I mean, maybe, yeah, probably not even her. I don't think you'd have much success in trying to get people to do that. And that was just not the case before, right? That was just not the case in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. Um, I realised that in those each of those decades, there were fewer and fewer artists who could be uh, referred to and there are way more now and that's part of the issue here but I think even though the uh, the successful musicians um, the most successful musicians are I think they're equally famous I think people have heard of them people could recognize a picture of them but they couldn't sing you a tune of theirs and I think that back of the envelope calculation that hypothesis not even a calculation, is it? But that's something which I would be surprised if it didn't pass the test. I think that tells you all you need to know. But this is also true, I think, in other areas of culture which are broadly comparable. So, I mean, going back to chefs, going back to food, I think there are loads of successful celebrity chefs whose food has not been eaten or people you know who make food which couldn't be picked out i mean no one could say you i think it'd be a very very small number of people who could suggest what a signature dish might be of say i don't know gordon ramsay or thomas keller or alan ducasse or Farron adria or i don't know any of those other extremely famous chefs i think another one a really interesting one actually is is footballers and the extent to which you know footballers have sort of transcended into popular culture, even as the importance of football teams, football clubs, has decreased. So I mean, obviously the Messi and Ronaldo phenomenon uh, has kind of most obviously illustrated this, and the, the extent to which you know fans have followed those players around the various clubs they've been at, and you can see that in the. You know, the numbers of Instagram followers that a, a club gains or loses when one of those players joins or leaves a club. But I think also, you, know, you can see it in the, you know, the absolute ubiquity of Mohamed Salah and Mesut Ozil in the Islamic world. Those fans don't care about Liverpool or whatever club that Ozil was playing for at the, at the time. It was very much the identity of that player that was the important bit. And, you know, fans follow players, certainly international fans follow players now, not clubs so much. And I mean, that's a that's an absolute statement. And obviously it's much more to do with like the relative importance of those two things changing. But like that's absolutely something which has developed over this period, too. So all of this stuff is about identity and the expression of identity through lifestyle and, you know, the way people express or, or the way people signal that they live their life. So this is probably a good time to address the old men moaning on podcasts question. The eternal things used to be better attitude. 
because of what I've just been saying does kind of imply a degree of that. And actually, I'm not really making a value judgment here, to be honest. I'm just trying to describe what I view as the shift of you know reality. But I mean, there absolutely is a tendency to you know view things as having gone downhill right and basically you can read the newspapers in any given time since the advent of newspapers and there will be someone in there saying things have gone to the dogs things used to be much better we're on the road to hell right and this is absolutely expressed in so many different ways today in certain ways, I think, which are not always acknowledged. I think the climate change thing, whilst I should caveat by saying I absolutely am not doubting the uh, veracity of climate science, but largely the way it's reported is very much in that kind of end of the world, wow, we've ruined everything, everything's bad and going to get worse. It's reported in that paradigm. And I think it colours quite a lot of the discourse around you know social developments more generally Two. So how much of this is justified with regards to music? Because it's important to say, and as I said before, like just the fact that people have a tendency to do that doesn't mean to say that it's always, you know, just explainable by that tendency, right? Surely you can say that sometimes things did used to be better, right? I mean, that's not surely not too much of a, a big jump to make. But let's just have a quick look or a quick think about the broad societal changes maybe over the period that we're talking about. And maybe, maybe a bit longer than that, actually. So I think, you know, housing and education, as we mentioned at the very top, have become much more expensive. And housing in particular, I think for young people today, it's just extraordinarily tough to house yourself in a way which is in any way affordable. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, you know, we talked about earlier on the effect of productivity gains being expressed in, you know, the lower cost of goods, but um, that money flowing elsewhere in the economy, which is to say mostly to, you know, housing, education, healthcare, these kinds of things, asset prices, asset prices, generally speaking, that's not just about the productivity gains of the internet, it's obviously also to do with central bank policy since 2008. But generally speaking, overall inequality is high, and by some measures higher than at any point since the 1920s. Now, the flip side to those two things is that, as mentioned, certain aspects of living is significantly cheaper. So we have the um, the eternal, well, if young people just didn't drink so many lattes, they'd be able to own a house, which is just nonsense. But there is a grain of truth in it because eating out and, you know, holidays and those sorts of um, everyday things, which would previously have been seen as luxuries, are affordable for the vast majority of people now on a day-to-day basis. I mean, a solid majority of people go on holiday abroad every year now, which was, you know, 50 years ago would have been unheard of. The flip side of the inequality statistics is that, yeah, okay, so there's there's a wider range of wealth and income, but actually the rates of extreme poverty, absolute poverty, are significantly lower than in the 1920s. So poverty is usually measured as a, as a relative um, number, as a relative measure. 
And in public policy in the West, generally speaking, um, absolute poverty was, I mean, it became less and less important as its um, prevalence became less and less pronounced. And that's absolutely understandable. But the reality is that, you know, there are far, there is far less penury than there was in the 1920s. So these things are kind of easy to caricature, but there is always two sides to a picture. Now, there's a parallel tendency in society alongside the bias towards <laughs> things used to be better. And that is to place disproportionate value on things that are new. Now, this is a real thing too, and arguably just as prevalent. Now, this is explainable, I think, at least partly, again, by the prevalence and influence of, of marketing departments and their obsession with young people, because young people will spend disproportionate amount of money on new goods. That you know, that's what the advertisers always want is access to young people. And what better way than to place precedence on whatever the shiny new thing is? So, despite the fact that established cultural tropes are, you know, fetishized almost, it's new people doing them or new people expressing them which are given the most largely speaking anyway given the most precedence now i was really reminded of this by a reel that i came across on instagram which i think was just a clip from a hip-hop podcast and this guy was essentially describing well it fits directly into you know old guys saying stuff was better before right and he was essentially defending that position by saying really that Really, just older people place more of a value on quality, right? So something that's new isn't necessarily good. Let's see if it's as good as the old stuff. And his his direct quote was, "Make a rap album as good as Cuban Links." Well, you haven't done that. And you know, Cuban Links, the uh, the Raekwon album from 1993 or whatever. But I mean, <laughs> that I think. I mean, it really resonated. But again, like the, the the kind of lights are flashing, right? Because I mean, whenever you see someone saying, "Well, this this new stuff isn't as good as the old stuff," then you would be justified in in being skeptical. But I think he's really right in that statement. Like, novelty does not equal quality. So just the fact that something's new and shiny, giving that precedence over something which is old, is really just as lazy and really should engender as much skepticism as you know, the, the, the opposite tendency, right? These things, things work in parallel. So we've got to be careful here of both things. Okay, I've been going on for over an hour, certainly in the recording time anyway. I'm not sure what it's going to cut down to, but it'll probably be about an hour. And I don't really feel like I've made a, a better argument or made a better stab of arguing these points than I did on Beats in Space. I need to write something down, I think. I think trying to do it from notes off the top of my head isn't really that useful. <laughs> to be honest. So maybe I'll try and do that. But, you know, I think that's enough for a podcast this week. I don't know what it's going to be. Some, yeah, like I said, something over now. I mentioned at the top that I was going to talk about Patreon a bit as well. So let's just do that before we go, shall we? Now, we've been doing this show. This is episode 75, as I mentioned at the top. So Clearly, this is a lot of work. I mean, it is fun too. I'm not moaning, but it's time and resources to produce it every week. And we got to pay for it somehow, right? We don't have ads, you'll have noticed. We have a model which is basically subscription-based, but most of it is free to wear. So we're really relying on the kindness of your hearts 
collective hearts or your heart individual listener to get us uh, over the line each month. Now, the way we've decided to do it is with Patreon. There are two tiers in that Patreon offering. They're both extremely fairly priced, I have to say. So the first one is four US dollars a month. So like three GBP 50, 350 GBP. And that gets you bonus podcasts. So I do more stuff than just the regular Not A Diving Podcast episodes. We usually have one. In fact, we always have one about every couple of weeks. And they usually take the form of Singles Club, which is a pretty fun format based upon a Fact Magazine appearance, Fact Magazine YouTube appearance that I made a few years ago, which got me death threats from Kanye West fans. But I've definitely been I've definitely been proved right about Kanye. So basically, I listen to music. I listen to 10 tracks and give my immediate review of each one. It's usually about four, half an hour, 40 minutes or so. So a couple of minutes or two, one to three minute reviews. And um, it's pretty lighthearted, I should emphasize. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's either talking about the tune or talking about the context of a tune in the wider scene or talking about the, you know, the wider industry or whether the, in the historical context of that tune. So for example, this week or this weekend, we released one where I went through the top 10 Mixmag tunes of 2008. Previously, we did Mixmag 1997 versus RA 2007, which was a really interesting comparison to make. That was fun. And, you know, sometimes I'll do more recent stuff. I did the, uh, you know, Spotify top 10, contemporary top 10, or I did a tech house top 10 once. That was fun. Generally speaking, it's fun uh, and it's a bit of extra content in, in uh, return for your price of a latte every every month, not even every week, every month. And there's another tier which is a bit more expensive. It's 10 US dollars a month, £8.50. And that gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels ahead of time and in high quality download formats. So that's pretty good, isn't it? It's basically all our music, but it's ahead of time too. So basically on the promo list and yeah, like I said, high quality AIFF files. So if you like what we're doing here and if you like what we're doing on Hot Flush and our other labels, then head over to patreon.com slash official and get supporting us because like I said, it is uh, something that we kind of need and we'd be very, very grateful if you did so. So, yeah. I mean, I'm at the end of an hour-long solo podcast, so probably not many of you are listening <laughs> to this part. But we would be extremely grateful if you found it in the kindness of your hearts to support us in that kind of a way. And, um, yeah, like I said, there is regular stuff that goes up all the time. In fact, you can see the previous posts if you go over to patreon.com slash official. You can see what you get for your money. And also just the knowledge that you're supporting a really good podcast, I think. Don't you think? I think so. I think it's pretty good. I think it's better than the other ones. <laughs> but I would say that. Anyway, this has been uh, a long solo pod that I now have to edit because I can't trust anyone else to edit these ones. Normally I have someone else who edits the pods for me, but when I'm, yeah, I can't let anyone edit this. It's going to have to be me. So I'm going to get on and do that. 
and hopefully get out on time tomorrow. I'm recording this on Monday afternoon. And um, yeah, hopefully it'll be out Tuesday morning. In fact, it will be out Tuesday morning because I'm about to sit down and do what I said I was just going to do. So I'm going to stop rambling on. I have been rambling on. I hope I've made some coherent points here. I think I've made some fairly incoherent ones as well. But maybe I've been um, coherent in some respects. And like I said, if you haven't listened to the Thoughts on Music episodes, if you're a new listener, then yeah, go back and have a listen to those because people do seem to like those episodes in particular. And with that, I'm going to jet off. So I'll see you back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode for Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. (laughs) 